The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. Today, I'd like to continue our thoughts uh, that we introduced from Second Chronicles chapter 7 last week on healing our land, and we're hopefully, Lord willing, building up to um, looking at Josiah and the environment that Josiah inherited from the wickedness of Manasseh. Manasseh did repent a little bit later in his life, but the wickedness of Manasseh and two years of Ammon, and Josiah inherited a horrible situation but by him having internal conviction, but also being exposed to the word of God, he made changes that the Lord sent amazing revival. And the focus on this is that we hope that if we humble ourselves and pray and repent, that God will heal our land and bless the kingdom and bless our churches. But the way that God typically will heal our land is by us making actions in our life to change things. You see, that's what we see with Josiah. You know, the Lord didn't do everything uh, with angels. He didn't do everything with uh, him sending some flood or some earthquake, you know, some something. He did it through his people, okay? And that's, Lord willing, what we're building up to. Uh, so to, to begin this morning, we want to, Go come back to Second Chronicles chapter seven, but uh, I want to begin in Deuteronomy twenty-eight, so you understand the reasons why this type of language is used. First of all, in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, in Second Chronicles chapter six, okay, and then Second Chronicles chapter seven is the Lord reiterating those same thoughts <clears throat> that that Solomon had already introduced um, in his prayer at the dedication of the temple. And the whole reason why Solomon used the language that he did in his prayer at the dedication of the temple was because he knew the word of God, was because he knew this is what God had told his people in the past. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28, remember uh, that this same similar type of uh, promise of God, uh, blessings, tremendous blessings for obedience, but chastisement and even curses for disobedience. He gave that same listing almost in Leviticus chapter 26 to the first generation of Israelites that came out of Egyptian bondage that had the opportunity to enter into the promised land, and they had just as much opportunity as this generation did to eat of uh, vineyards they didn't plant, to drink of wells they didn't dig. I mean, they had, they had the ability to partake of, of that land that flowed with milk and honey, but instead you have the 10 spies out of the 12 that doubted, and then you had Joshua and Caleb, only two out of the 12 gave a good report. They were deceived, and that whole generation, everybody 20 and up, they died in the wilderness, okay? So now you have a whole new generation that's about to uh, get its second chance, 
So they get a second chance to go into the kingdom, and God gives them the exact same, almost the exact same, uh, just covenant, for lack of a better term. I mean, God, God is always faithful to his word, and he's also always faithful to his character. You know, God has dealt with his people the same way in just about every generation, that if you're obedient, I'm going to bless you so much you can't even handle it. Uh, open wide your mouth and I'll fill it. I'll bless you more than you can handle. But if you're disobedient, I'm going to get your attention. Okay, And, that, and that's, that's really the point I want us to understand because we're going to focus today on some of the negatives. We're going to focus on drought. We're going to focus on famine and locust. Okay, But the reason why God sends this is not just to... Um, God is not a warden of a prison, okay? God is not just punishing his people. He's trying to get his people's attention, okay? And what happens in prosperity is that it becomes harder and harder and harder to get his people's attention. And it's amazing how the Lord lays everything out in the four primary books of the law that this is everything that's going to come. We're going to talk about Solomon in a little bit, but there were three things that the Lord said in the law that kings were not supposed to do, okay? Now, remember, this is before God even uh, gave them a king, and then when they wanted a king, he said, no, I'm your king. You don't need a king, but he, even hundreds of years before that, he knew that his people were still going to be hard-headed and stuff. We want to be like everybody else. We want to have a king just like everybody. He knew that that's how they were going to act. So he said, when I finally give you what you want, <laughs> I told you you don't need it, but, I, but I'm going to give it to you anyway because sometimes that's how you got to teach children lessons, right? <laughs> that's the best way to teach. But okay, you think you want it? And guess what? He told them everything that was going to happen when they got a king. Saul was not a good king. He told them everything that was going to happen, and they said, yeah, that, that sounds great to us. <laughs> he's going to oppress us, and he's going to steal all of our, you know, he's going to essentially have ridiculous taxes and take all of our stuff. Well, that sounds great to us. We still want a king, you know. Uh, so before they even got a king, when the Lord told them they didn't need one, he actually said way back in Deuteronomy, these are the things that the king is not supposed to do. And what are the three things? I think this may be in Deuteronomy 17. It's to multiply horses, to multiply wives, and don't go down to Egypt for help. And guess who the king was who checked all three boxes? Solomon, right? He multiplied wives. He had a thousand of them by the end of it. He multiplied horses and he made an alliance with Egypt, okay? So God tells his people what's going to happen beforehand, knowing the errors that they would make in the future. And I think this is earlier on, uh, this may be in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where he even, let me see if I can find that real quick. <clears throat> yeah, talk about the Lord uh, telling his people the, uh, the exact things that are going to happen beforehand because unfortunately parents know their children well <laughs> and, and, and they know the tendencies of the mistakes they're going to make. And we know these verses really from the admonitions, uh, uh, the beautiful testimony here, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and all thy might, right? That's the greatest commandment we're told in the New Testament. And you need to teach your children about it. Teach them diligently unto thy children and uh, talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up, thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand and, and they shall be frontless between thy eyes. Write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. Teach your children, talk of them in your daily activities, discuss the word of God in your home. And he says, Okay, continuing in verse 10. It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land. Now, God's people and people in general, they generally can't handle prosperity, but they really can't handle prosperity when you go from nothing to having everything, right? I mean, there is not a single success story that I can think of of someone who won the lottery, who went from being... Uh, uh, very struggling financially and they win the lottery and have the millions of dollars. I can't know of anyone, I haven't heard stories of anyone that really dealt with that prudently. No, they can't handle it. <laughs> they can't. So it's not just that they had blessings. It's that they went from bondage and remember, they came out of Egypt rich, right? Now he gave them those riches for a reason, primarily to build the tabernacle and all this stuff. But you went from having nothing to coming out rich and now going into a land that flows with milk and honey where you just have everything sitting right there for It's one thing to deal with prosperity as you just generally kind of move up the ladder and I have a little bit more than I had yesterday. But when you go from nothing to everything, very few people respond well to that, okay? So the Lord says, I'm gonna give you, into verse 10, I'm gonna give you great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. You know, you have a lot more appreciation for something when you're the one that had to work hard to get it, right? <laughs> I mean, he talks about uh, houses full of good things, which thou fillest not, wells digged, which thou diggest not. I can only imagine how much hard work it must have took back in the day to, to dig a well, right? I mean, you got to get, I don't know, Hundred feet down, probably. Think about how how hard of work that had to be back in the day before a, a backhoe and ask. Well, if you're the one that dug the well, <laughs> that that water tastes a little bit sweeter to you. But if you're the son and, and you just show up and you're like, oh, look at this nice little well. But this water's nice. But what do you do? <laughs> you take it for granted, right? If you, if you're not the one that had to dig the well, inevitably you're going to take the well for granted. You see. So he says, look, I'm going to bring you into a land that's going to be so blessed. And I, it's fully furnished. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to go into like a house and it be fully. But an entire land is fully furnished for you. And I'm just going to kick the inhabitants out. And I'm going to let you have everything that was theirs. You're going to have houses full of good things, which you didn't work for. Wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not. And when thou shalt have eaten and be full, you're content, you're happy, you're full. This is what the Lord warned them of beforehand. <clears throat> then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt and of the house and from the house of bondage. The Lord told them beforehand 
you are going to be tempted to be complacent, to be lazy and forget the Lord. Don't do it. And then, of course, what do God's people do? Okay? It's been a while since I've looked at these verses, but I remember, if I remember correctly, it makes a strong point at the end of Joshua that, and I believe the beginning of the book of Judges, that when that godly generation first came in, they, they were very diligent as long as Joshua's generation was there. The problem was, is that generation, they, they had experienced the wilderness. They had experienced those difficult times. The problem was, is now they were in, uh, enjoying prosperity, but they didn't teach their children diligently. And when that whole generation died, what period did you descend into? The period of the judges, right? Where they would be oppressed for a period of time. And then they would repent and they'd say, oh, Lord, we're sorry. And the Lord would kick out the Midianites and they'd have a judge. And then things would get a little bit comfortable again, peace and prosperity again. And you just have that cycle over and over again. And that period of time is described as a time where men did what was right in their own eyes, in their own sight. What did they do? Going back to Josiah, they neglected the word of God. Okay, they neglected the word of God. They, they didn't say, you know, much of discipleship, by the way, is you saying, I have a desire to do this. But looking at the word of God and saying, you know what, I don't need to do that. I'm going to choose to do the opposite of what feels convenient in the moment. That's, that's most of discipleship, you see. So if you don't have that baseline of the foundation of the Word of God, then I'm just going to be doing whatever feels good or feels the easiest in the moment. And you know what that's typically called? You know what the easiest route normally is? Sin, typically, you know. Uh, discipleship is the difficult route. So <clears throat> anyway... The Lord tells his people beforehand, be careful, be careful, because the, inevitably you're going to receive these blessings that you didn't work for. And that's what grace is, by the way. Aren't you glad for grace, <laughs> right? Aren't you glad that we have unmerited, that means we don't deserve it, right? Aren't you glad we, God gives us unmerited favor? I'm thankful for unmerited favor on the cross. I'm thankful for unmerited favor that uh, that we're saved to heaven by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God doesn't just give us grace, says in the New Testament, God gives us more grace, right? He gives us grace upon grace. He gives us providential grace every day that we don't deserve. And inevitably, when we get things we don't deserve, our tendency is to take it for granted, okay? Now, what happens when you get full what happens when you get full and you get happy and you get, and you get, you know, <laughs> okay, put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites for a little bit, okay? First of all, they're in the wilderness and they get a little bit hungry and then God gives them manna from heaven. Then they don't get happy. Then they're not satisfied with the manna and they start grumbling about the manna and then God sends them quail, okay? But they go from walking in the middle of the wilderness, having their daily rations that they weren't even content with those daily rations, 
to now I go into a house and it's fully stocked with everything. Well, you know what? I feel like I probably had to, you know, God made a promise that he was going to send that manna every day and he was going to do it for six days out of the week. He was going to do it. But at the end of the day, when I went to bed at night, I didn't have any food for the next day. Do you understand that? When I went to bed at night, outside of Friday, Saturday was the Sabbath, you had double then, but every other day of the week, I go to bed with no food, and God's made a promise that he's going to put manna on the, uh, send it, and it'll be ready for us the next morning, but you really have to kind of walk by faith a little bit more when you go to bed with no food, and then every day you wake up and, oh, wait, the food's on the ground again. Oh, praise God. But what happens when you go to bed, and, and instead of having no food, you look at your, they didn't have a refrigerator back then, but whatever they had, you go in there and you, you're not having to say, you know, you're, you're, you're praying that prayer at the end of the day, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, please be kind and gracious to send us the manna again. Then he sends it, thank you, Jesus, for sending the manna. Instead, you know, if I know that I have enough in the cupboard to, for the next week, for the next month, I may not pray that prayer when I'm going to bed. You see? See that? If you're having to rely on the Lord every day, then all of a sudden, you're not, if you're not full and content, you're having to rely on the Lord every day, then your prayers are probably going to be a lot more fervent. And your thanksgiving, when God answers those prayers, are probably going to be a lot more diligent, right? But when you have everything that you need, some of those prayers kind of start slacking a little bit. You know, Sodom was a, was a bad place by the end of it. But what's so sad is that the beginning of the downfall of Sodom, it's in Ezekiel chapter 16, <clears throat> the beginning of the downfall of Sodom in Ezekiel 16 and 49, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Now we know where they ended up with homosexuality and the Lord just burned them up with fire, from, fire and brimstone from heaven. But what was the beginning of the downward decline? Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. First of all, pride. Pride. What's the remedy for a land that may be uh, the kingdom or the church that may be encountering a period of drought? The very first step is what? Humility. Right? If they humble themselves and pray, and what's the very first step? Humility. Okay, well, what's the danger? Pride, pride. Sodom was a very prosperous place and Lot knew it was a very prosperous. That's why he picked it. That's why he, he chose to go that route. It looked prosperous, so I, I think I can make a lot of money over there. You know, the New York City of the day. I think it looks very prosperous, so therefore, I'm gonna choose that route. Well, guess what? He gets there and there's not a very too many humble, meek, lowly people. No, they're all prideful, okay? And then, because of the abundance, because of the wealth over there in Sodom, those good, well-watered plains, now, all of a sudden, they have fullness of bread. Well, we got, we got plenty. We got all that we need. We got all that we need. And then, what does that lead to? Full of pride, fullness of bread, and then what does that lead to? Abundance of idleness. 
See, that's what happens when we get prosperous, right? We get lazy. We get lazy. You know, we don't have to work for it, especially when you don't have to work for digging that well. Inevitably, you just get lazy. But notice the spiral effect. It started with pride and then prosperity. And then in prosperity, when you're not going to bed with a, I, you know, I just, and I've never experienced this. Praise God for his, for his providence and grace. And I pray he continues to bless us, not just my family, but uh, us here in this country to hopefully not have to experience this. But I feel like that your prayers are a lot more fervent at the end of the night uh, when you literally are going to bed hungry and haven't had three square meals that day. I feel like your prayers at the end of the day when you're going to bed hungry is a little bit more fervent than when you're full and happy and instead of saying, man, I hope I have enough to eat, instead of, oh, man, I ate way too much at that buffet tonight. You know, Inevitably, your prayers are not going to be as fervent. And it leads to laziness. It leads to complacency. And that's why God's people can can never handle prosperity. We, we've always failed. In every generation, in the Bible, I think we're living it out in America, in every generation, God's people cannot handle prosperity. So what does God do? You know, you get so dulled when you're, when you're, when you're prosperous, you get dulled to sometimes the convictions of the Holy Spirit. So what does God have to do to get your attention? He has to remove some of the prosperity. You see? You know, we talked about the condition of some of the churches here in this area and Macedonia, but it's not even Macedonia. That's, that's one of the most alarming things about the whole thing is that we're not the exception. We're the norm. That's what's alarming is we're the norm, okay? But I talked about that, that tier of, of devoted church members between age 65 and 80 that have just been pillars in the church. But there's people and generations missing after that. But think about the people that raised that group of people, okay? The people that are age 65 to 80, the, the salt of the earth and, and that have been the pillars of the Primitive Baptist Church in America. <clears throat> Let's just look back a little bit. And in the aftermath of World War I, America started making its first ascent, overtaking the European countries of being the leader in the world and the most prosperous. Well, then you have the roaring 20s, right? You had all this prosperity in the, in the 20s. Well, what did God do? What did God suffer in the middle of all of that prosperity in the 20s? The Great Depression, right? And then the people who lived through the Depression, you know, God took away the abundance of food where you're getting uh, idle and having all these, you know, uh, you don't have time. The Roaring Twenties were all about, you know, the, the dance halls and all this excitement. Well, now all of a sudden people have time to do that because they're not having to work six days a week to barely make ends meet. You see, now all of a sudden you have all this time on your hands. The, the old saying that says an, an idle mind is the devil's playground. Keep your hands busy. Uh, well, this is essentially what this is saying. Is What happens when you have an abundance of idleness? You start getting into trouble, right? You start doing things. You, so now all of a sudden you have a little bit of prosperity and now we're not having to 
to work uh, six days a week for 14 hours just to make sure I can feed all these kids. Now, all of a sudden, I have a little bit more time on my hands. So now what do I start doing? I start going down to the club and dancing a little bit. So that's, that's the roaring 20s, all right? Well, what happens? People get a little bit too prosperous. And what, is, what did God suffer to happen? The Great Depression, right? You take away a little bit of prosperity, and now all of a sudden you get people's attention. And I want you to understand, that group of people that lived through the Depression, those were the parents, those were the parents of that group of 65 to 80 that are the rock-solid members of the church. They understood, they understood what real suffering was like. And they raised their kids to take it for granted. What was the problem though? The next generation, the next generation didn't have to live through it firsthand. They only heard, sold, heard stories about it. And now all of a sudden we have this unparalleled level of prosperity that's happening. And what do they do? They follow the exact same pattern that God's people have always done. We get a little bit too prosperous, a little bit too full, and that leads to abundance of idleness. Now, remember, we're talking about a spiritual kingdom, right? God's using natural things to teach spiritual lessons. And you just simply get lazy in the kingdom. You get lazy. So, if that laziness is because of prosperity, what does God do? I can't get these people to... I'm sending preachers to preach to them, you know? Uh, there's watchmen on the walls, and I'm, and I'm stirring men to preach to them, but they don't... They're not concerned about me because they're going to bed with a full stomach instead of, instead of uh, what was it, 30% unemployment in the Great Depression, not knowing how you're going to feed your family. Well, now all of a sudden, you have a, a revival because <laughs> now all of a sudden, you have to depend on the Lord. You don't know how you're going to provide for your family. But now all of a sudden, you have this prosperity, and we feel like we have enough. So what I want you to understand when we talk about drought, and famine and locusts, God does not send these things to just punish as a warden convicted criminals in his prison to make us miserable. He sends these things to get our attention. He has to take away some prosperity to get our attention. You see? And if we don't realize that something needs to change, then you'll never meet the first requirement of humility because you have too much pride to admit there's something wrong, okay? God sends these things to get his people's attention. And if we don't get it, and if it doesn't register and it doesn't get our attention, God is gracious, God is long-suffering, but he's not everlasting suffering, <laughs> okay? Here in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he tells them beforehand, before they ever went into the, into the promised land, if you're obedient, verse two, these blessings will come upon you, but they're gonna overtake you. They're going to consume you. They're, they're going to, God says in Ephesians 3, I'm able to do 
exceeding abundantly above all you ask. This is the cup overflowing. I'm going to give you so much you can't even handle. And that's what these guys, that's what these people got. And guess what? It is true. Unfortunately, he says, I'm going to give you so much you can't handle it. And unfortunately, that proved to be true, right? He gave them so much they couldn't handle it. They went from having nothing and being forced to have make this quota of bricks in Egypt and, and, and uh, uh, taskmasters whipping them in the back. And now all of a sudden, I don't. I have everything I need and I don't really have to work so hard to get that. Well, inevitably, um, I'm going to get a little bit more complacent than I should be. Okay. Look at all these blessings, all these blessings that God's going to give his people. Blessed shalt thou be in the city. Blessed shalt thou be in the field. Now we're talking about healing the land. So talk about all, pay attention to all these that deal with the land and with crops. Okay. Blessed shalt thou be in the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy ground and the fruit of thy cattle and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Your basket and your store are going to be blessed. Okay. He says you're going to be conquering your enemies. You're going to be successful in battles. But let's specifically talk about drought. <clears throat> Verse 12. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure and the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season, to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations and shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, etc., etc. Verse 15. But it shall come to pass. You know, these are shalls, you know. The old phrase, we're the hard shalls, the hard shells. Well, we're all about Matthew one twenty one. shall, right? He shall save his people from... Well, guess what? God has uh, quite a few other shalls in the Bible too. <laughs> if you do this, this is what I'm going to do. And I want you to understand this, uh, this premise of sowing and reaping that revival and drought are not arbitrary, random events. That is God's response to his people's obedience or disobedience. I want us to understand that. Revival or drought, growth or depression in a spiritual sense is not God casting lots and saying, well, I'll give this over here and this over here and he's just randomly popping out these blessings to random people. Okay, That's not the way God works. God's a covenant-keeping God. And he says, if you do this, then I will do this. And then in the negative sense, if you do this, then I will do this, okay? So growth, revival, or the other end of the spe spectrum, drought, famine, struggling, those are essentially a litmus test of our obedience or disobedience to God's word. Those are God's responses to the obedience of his people. Okay? It's not random. So if you disobey, I said I'm going to bless you if you're obedient, but I'm going to curse you if you're disobedient. Cursed shalt thou be in the city. I'm going to act it. We're going to see this in Haggai. I'm actively working against you. Okay? Cursed shalt thou be in the field. 
Cursed shall be the fruit of the body. Cursed shall be the fruit of the land. Now let's skip. Okay, pestilence. Verse 21. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee. That's brought back up in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. One of the things that's been so discouraging to me over the last two years, outside of September 11th, I think September 11th, that was back in 2001, I think the other event that's probably the most seismic in my lifetime was March of 2020 and the corresponding two years of COVID and this crazy environment that we've been in for, I mean, it's, it's been, think about things that changed our life. It's September 11th and COVID, right? And what's so sad, you know, I, God didn't, the reason why we have diseases is because Adam sinned and the genetic code is corrupted. God didn't create COVID. God didn't send COVID, but he suffered it, right? I mean, he's sovereign. He could have prevented all of that, but he suffered it to happen. And what was God's people's response? What is the general response of Christianity to what we could easily deem to be a pestilence? What was God's people's response to that? This is not just primitive Baptist. This is all of Christianity. All the numbers are saying that there is probably 25 to 30% of churchgoers that will never come back, that are gone, that will never come back. Now, what's so sad is that God suffers things to happen so to open our eyes to where we will repent and become more devoted after than before. What's so alarming about Christianity today is that God suffered something to happen and we went the other direction, right? Now, that's alarming. You know, that's why we have to have enough humility to realize the situation that we're in when things come that we become more devoted and more zealous instead of going the other direction. Instead, the general disposition of Christianity in America fell off the map instead of repenting. That's not good. That's not good. So he mentions pestilence here. What should be our response when abnormal circumstances happen that disrupt the prosperity and the convenience that we have? Our response should look, be to look in the mirror and say, Lord, as we discussed last week, search me, O oh God. Show me. Show me if there be any wicked way in me. What is, what it, can I, and I can't, I can't fix everybody else. I can only do my best by God's grace to try to fix me. Lord, what am I doing wrong that I can do better? And if everyone does that individually and they actually repent, you want to know what that's called? That's called revival. <laughs> if everyone does that individually and repents and changes and the Lord honors that, that's called revival. Okay. So he specifically mentions pestilence here. Verse 23. Thy heaven that is over thee, thy head, shall be as brass, and earth that is under thee shall be like iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before your enemies, he talks about um, you being more prosperous in battle. Skip down to 
33. The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou eatest not, which thou knowest not, eat up. And thou shalt be oppressed and crushed. Okay, now let's focus on the locust. There's 38. Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field and shall gather but little in. So you're working hard in a natural sense. The problem is you're not having any harvest. Why? Because God sends locusts to consume it. And then he says the same thing in verse 42. All thy trees and fruit of thy land shall the locust consume. Okay? So this is the covenant that God gave his people. If you're obedient, I'm going to bless you abundantly. If you're disobedient, I'm going to chastise you to try to get, shake you up to get your attention. Okay? Now let's, now let's go to 2 Chronicles 6. Okay? 2 Chronicles 6. <clears throat> and this is uh, an excerpt of Solomon's prayer. They dedicated the temple, and they're in an amazing period of prosperity uh, you remember they have all this wealth. I mean, there's just, if you put a dollar amount on the, on the gold and the silver in Solomon's temple, there is no telling. And it was not a big building, by the way. It wasn't a massive building. It probably wasn't that much bigger than the facility we're in today, really. But the millions of millions of current day dollars that went into this thing. And then you have Solomon's amazing wisdom and then you have peace all around. So you've got riches, you've got good leadership, and you have peace. Well, that always spells downfall uh, for God's people, unfortunately. Okay, so they're dedicating the temple. And what does Solomon say in the middle of dedicating this temple? Now, where did he get this language from? Where did he get all this language from? From Deuteronomy, from Leviticus. He didn't just make this stuff up. He knew the word of God. And he said he knew that if, if we are obedient, look how you've blessed us right now to build this amazing temple that is the most ornate, expensive thing on the face of the world, and we are the most prosperous nation in the entire world right now. Look what is happening when we're being obedient. You see? Look what's happening. But Solomon also knew the Word of God well enough to know if we're disobedient, God promised some things if we were disobedient. Okay, so, so he's, he, this temple is the coronation. <laughs> this is the pinnacle of the nation of Israel, right? It's all downhill after this, all downhill. This is the pinnacle. But even when he's up on the mountaintop, Solomon knew enough about the word of God to say, I know you've told us you're going to bless us if we're obedient. Oh, but Lord, please be merciful if in times in the future, we become disobedient. And unfortunately, you want to know the start of the spiral downward? It was Solomon. It was Solomon. And you want to know where it started with him? Pride. <laughs> right? This was the start of the, the... The man who said this is the man who started the spiral down. Okay? But he says this in the dedication of the temple. And he uses this language because this is what God said he would do back in the law. Okay? Verse 24 of 2 Chronicles 6. And if thy people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy, because, now, see, he, he understood this is a cause and effect. This is an if-then statement. If we are, when, why was there, why was there peace in Solomon's day? 
Why was there peace in Solomon's day? Because David went out and won battles so there could be peace in Solomon's day. Why was there all of these materials for Solomon to build the temple? Because David, by the end of his life, he said, you're not going to build the temple. The Lord told him that. You're not going to build the temple. But I'm going to spend the rest of my life making, uh, uh, storing up materials to where my son can build the temple. He was looking toward the next generation. The reason why Solomon had prosperity was because of the diligence and the faithfulness of the prior generation. You understand that? That's why. Solomon didn't, he didn't earn this. He didn't earn this. He didn't, he didn't even earn his wisdom. God gave it to him. Now, he prayed the right prayer and God gave it to him. He had the right attitude. By the way, you want to know why he had the right attitude? Because <laughs> he was raised after the man after God's own heart. David told him the way he ought to act. You know, you, you've been given a great responsibility. And I have other kids that are going to try to take your throne, but you're the one that's going to lead these people. And why was it that Solomon had enough spirited wisdom to ask for wisdom? It's because of the way that David raised him. You see? So the reason why Solomon had prosperity that led to his downfall was because of the hard work of the previous generation. Now, God was, now David made his mistakes and he had to suffer internally for that. His, his family was a mess, but he blessed the nation under David's leadership. Why? Because David went out and he conquered enemies. So if, if the time comes where now all of a sudden, <laughs> Which, by the way, why is it that David was blessed to conquer a lot of these enemies? Is because most of the time before they went to battle, he was praying for the Lord's protection and blessing to do that. Well, okay, what happens when they start losing these battles a little bit later? You don't see any indication in the Word of God of them praying for the Lord's will and direction and guidance and blessing upon the battle. And lo and behold, what happens? Guess what? All of a sudden, we're losing. Why in the world would we be losing these battles all of a sudden? Well... Were you praying beforehand for the Lord to bless you the way that your father David did? Okay. So there's going to come a time where we're losing battles. The kingdom's not growing. We're losing battles. And Solomon had enough wisdom, at least at this time, to understand this is a direct one-to-one -one relationship. He says, if thy people, Israel, be put to the worst before the enemy. We're getting whooped in, in battles. Why? Because they have sinned against thee. You know, you're going to win battles if you're, if you're obedient. But if all of a sudden we start losing battles, then we don't need to be like, well, you know what? Actually, we, we tried to flank them on the left. We need to start trying to flank them on the right a little bit more. We, we need to... We, we need to change our military tactics. God doesn't need a military. He, he, he uses 300 men with lamps, right? I mean, that's who he used with Gideon. God doesn't need numbers, you see? So if you start losing battles all of a sudden, because God's people are always going to win battles they're outnumbered in. That's, that's the story of the whole Old Testament, isn't it? <laughs> the underdog is always going to beat the, uh, the favored party but when God's fighting on their behalf. So if all of a sudden you're losing battles, and we're not talking about just one battle, if you're consistently losing battles against enemies, then that should be something that should set off 
some alarm bells in your head to be like, you know what? Maybe there's something we need to do different. And Solomon said, if you're losing battles, then that is a direct one-to-one relationship that you have sinned against the Lord. Now, God always offers remedy for that. But if you return and confess your name, thy name, and pray and make supplication before thee, then God's going to hear. You know, you see this language about, then will I hear from heaven and will hear their language. Where'd that language come from? Solomon said it in the previous chapter. Where did Solomon get it from? God promised it hundreds of years before, all the way back in Deuteronomy. You see? So we talked about war. If you're losing in war, then that's evidence that there's something wrong in the camp. You know, God God evidenced that very quickly when they uh, started um, fighting in the land of Canaan, didn't they? They did things God's way in Jericho, and, you know, a weird, weird battle tactic, right? We're going to circle these people seven times, then we're going to get trumpets, and we're going to blow this trumpet, and the walls are going to fall down. Oh, by the way, oh, oh, we, we defeated Jericho like that. Okay, what? now we go to city number two, Ai. Oh, well, this one's not near as impressive as Jericho. Let's only take a couple people. And guess what? They got whooped. Why'd they get whooped? <laughs> because there was one man, you see that? There was one man who committed a sin and the whole nation lost because of Achan's sin. So if you start losing battles, you need to look internally. God manifested that very quickly, didn't he? Then the very next battle. You lost against people you should have defeated because internally there was an unrepentant sin that wasn't dealt with. Well, guess what? They dealt with it. <laughs> and what happened when they went back to AI? They whooped them. <laughs> God, God is very consistent in the way he deals with his people, right? <laughs> you deal with Achan, they, you deal with the issue, we go back and we fight the same people that just beat us, and what do we do? We whoop them, just like we should have to start with. Okay? So now he says um, about drought. Okay? Verse 25. Then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy people. Well, this is a continuation of, of the losing battles. And God's going to forgive you. God's going to forgive you. Um, but now drought, verse 26, when the heaven is shut up, that there is no rain. Now, obviously there are periods of months, you know, maybe even six months or maybe even a year where there are periods of less rain, there are periods of more rain. We go through seasons in the church. We go through seasons in nature. Those are natural. Okay. But once a drought gets over, you know, like a year or two, that's when God's people's spiritual eyes should have been opened, okay? If there is, heaven is shut up that there is no rain, why would that be occurring? Why? Solomon says, because they have sinned against thee. It's just that simple. A drought equals disobedience. A drought in the kingdom equals sin that needs to be addressed. But if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when thou dost afflict them, 
then you're going to hear from heaven and forgive the sin of thy people when thou hast taught them the good way wherein they should walk and send rain upon thy land which thou hast given unto thy people for an inheritance. And then if there be a dearth or a pestilence or blasting or mildew or locust or caterpillars, if their enemies besiege them in the cities of the land, whatsoever sore or whatsoever sickness there be, then what prayer or what supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all thy people Israel, when everyone shall know his own sore and his own grief. Verse 30, Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and render unto every man according unto all his ways, whose heart thou knowest. I love the way this is presented, that God is so gracious to hear the prayers of his people. Because why, now let's go to chapter seven. Why did God give this promise to Solomon that if drought, if pestilence, if famine comes, why did God say, if my people repent, I'm gonna heal their land? Why did God promise to do that in chapter seven? Because Solomon asked him to in chapter six. I tell you, isn't God good? Isn't God good to hear the prayers of his people? So then, where did all this language come from that, we, that is so prevalent in Christianity in chapter 7? Where did all this come from? From Solomon's prayer, which was based on the law back in Deuteronomy. So now we fast forward. This is what, this is what Solomon prays in public. Okay, But then the Lord in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 7 comes and reaffirms this covenant to him by night. Okay, so this is just to Solomon. And these are the verses that we know very well. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Why did God promise to do that? Because guess what? Solomon asked him to. Now it's consistent with his character, okay? When we pray... There's a verse in the New Testament that says, whatever the Lord, whatever you pray, the Lord will give it to you. Well, if it's according to his will, right? So Solomon prayed according to God's will. Now, if he prayed for something that was contrary to God's will, then God's not going to give him that, right? But he prayed for something that is in accordance with God's will, and God said, you know what? I will go ahead, and I, I've already... He's reiterating the covenant again. You see that? He, he made a covenant with the first generation in Leviticus, and then they died in the wilderness. He made a covenant with, the, with uh, the people that are about to enter in in Deuteronomy, and they were very prosperous, but they later faded away. Now he's reiterating the same covenant a third time. You see that? God is consistent with his character. And because he's consistent with his character and because he's a loving father... <laughs> 
we're not going to get near as far as I anticipated today. But a father knows his children well and over years of parenting, the father knows the best way to get the attention of that child, right? Well, what happens when the children get a little bit too... (laughs) too prosperous and get a little bit too brassy, you know? Sometimes children back talk you a little bit. Sometimes they'll murmur a little bit. What happens if that if that child is maybe a little bit too spoiled? Well, guess what? We're going to have to dial things back a little bit and uh, allow them to feel a little bit of discomfort, you see? That's how God deals with his children. But all of that is not punitive. It is loving chastisement of our heavenly father to try to get our attention. You see, God chastises us for the purpose of affirming that we are his beloved children. If he didn't chastise us, that would just mean that we're bastards and not even sons. That's what the New Testament says, right? So we, we, number one, if we see these conditions around us, the kingdom is diminishing instead of advancing. There is, we're losing battles instead of what we're, we have drought and famine. We have, we have pestilence and a spiritual, if we, if we see these, these indicators, then God, as our loving heavenly father, is trying to show his children, child, you need to change your actions. But you want to know what it takes first before you get to the end result it takes a little bit of humility to start with to realize somebody else is not the problem. Actually, I'm really the main part of the problem. See? I can't control what other people do, but I can set an example for other people to the best of my ability. I mean, I'm talking about the Christianity as a whole. I mean, I can't, I can't have really any impact on what we're going to talk about Josiah. And things were so bad in that day that there were sodomites right outside the temple of God. We ended up getting rid of them. But there are Christian groups, supposedly churches, that are accepting them into their church. Well, you know what? I can't deal with their problems, you know? It's not my calling to go into these other Christian groups and say, you need to get that out of there. What I can do is try to handle my business better. Maybe be an example. Who knows? I mean, maybe you'll have interactions with members of those churches that are on the fence. And you can show them the stance of the Word of God to where they can make an impact in another area. See, I mean, I can't, I can't change the Methodist church stance on that. But just by my diligence, I might have an impact on somebody else that maybe they can make a change somewhere else, okay? So the most important thing for us to remember as we consider this today and probably spending a little more time considering this together, God sends this type of struggle, 
pestilence, of drought, of maybe even famine in the kingdom. He sends it for a purpose. And it's so that if we've got too complacent, if we've got too full, then we can be have the realization of our dependency on the Lord. You know, that was the problem with Laodicea, right? We are rich and increased with goods. We have need of nothing. And Jesus is knocking at the door and saying, hey, can you please let me back into my church that I bought and paid for? Well, same thing happened. You want to talk about the different cycles? The exact same thing happened in Laodicea. First generation. I guarantee you that first church in, in Laodicea that came from pagans, kind of like the Thessalonians, they came from worshiping pagan idols into the church. Boy, I guarantee you that first generation was devoted. What were they? Because they had the perspective to know where they came from. But what happened with the next generation that had never saw that? Well, now all of a sudden, that next generation in Laodicea go forward about 50 years, and that church in Laodicea, they're going through the motions, but Jesus is not even involved in the church. He's outside the church. Why? Because there was a whole generation that all they ever saw was prosperity. You see? God teaches us the most meaningful, impactful lessons in trials, in tribulation, in suffering. It's hard for us to learn a lot of lessons when, we're, when we think we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, right? It's hard for us to learn the appropriate lessons. So therefore, it's a great blessing for God to send those things to kind of recalibrate everything. You know, during my time, it's been about two, two weeks without a job, had more times on my hands and Thankful I had a chance to start a new job this week, and that went really well. But one, one prayer that I tried to pray from Proverbs chapter 30 during that time period is, Lord, he says, two things have I required of thee. Feed me with food that is convenient for me. Give me what I need, but Lord, please don't give me too much. <laughs> he said, lest I be full, this is in Deuteronomy chapter, I mean, uh, Proverbs chapter 30, lest I be full and forget thee and say, who is the Lord? But I also don't want to be poor and, and be tempted to, you know, to steal anything. Lord, just give me what I need. Give me what I need. And you know if I can handle a little bit more. <laughs> you know if I can handle, and if I can't handle a little bit more, then Lord, don't give it to me. You know. A good father knows. You know, uh, I've heard <laughs> uh, many, many kids say, well, you know what? Uh, you need to treat every kid the same. You can't treat every kid the same. Because guess what? Every kid's different. <laughs> and yet there, there may be some kids, let's just talk about this in natural parenting. There may be some kids that you can give them a dollar and you know they're going to treat that dollar really good and they're going to go and they're going to make good, wise decisions. And, and, but you give another kid a dollar and they're just going to go find the first candy bar. A dollar candy, probably can't even buy a candy bar nowadays. <laughs> but they're, they're, you give some one kid a dollar and he wastes it. You give one kid a dollar and he's saving it up for something he wants. Well, you know what? You have to treat those kids different. You see? There's one kid that can handle it and there's one kid I've, I've got to teach him a little bit more. I, I have to instruct him a little bit more. So Lord, give us what we need. Give us what we need and Lord, please bless us to always, when God blesses with prosperity, to be thankful but humble. Right? To be thankful. But if you always keep in mind that I don't deserve it, 
it's really hard to get too prideful and haughty and murmuring against the Lord because you didn't get a little bit extra. You see? If we remain grateful of what God's given us, it's really difficult uh, for us to start that downward spiral. <laughs> so therefore, sometimes if we get a little bit too prideful, I know I've experienced this in the last month. <laughs> sometimes you get a little bit too prideful, the Lord will graciously send some circumstances in your life to humble you a little bit. He's good like that. <laughs> he will graciously send you some instances in your life to get you where you need to be. If you get a little bit too prideful, you know, I'm going to suffer some things to happen to where he can learn a, bit, a little bit more humility. That's what a loving father will do. So sometimes we look at chastisement all wrong. Oh, the Lord's picking on me. No, he's showing how much he loves you. He's showing how much he loves you. And I certainly hope that we can be aware of that in the kingdom and that the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, will bless us to repent where there's need for repentance and be more diligent and more fervent in service to the Lord in the future than we have been in the past. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.